Hello, listeners. Thank you again for joining me here on the Mad Scientist Podcast. And to the students who are listening to this, welcome back to another semester. I always loved September, not just because as a huge nerd, I've always loved going back to school, but also because it's the beginning of fall. The leaves around my house here are already starting to change into bright reds and deep oranges, and my local shopping market already smells like cinnamon spice. This is also the time of year where my diet starts to consist almost 25% of apples, the other 75% consisting of various forms of sandwiches and candy corn. Seriously, how do people not like candy corn? People get offended sometimes at comedians, but the only time I've ever been offended at one was that Lewis Black bit where he talks about candy corn being terrible. Clearly the man is woefully misinformed, because candy corn is a national treasure. The only way to improve candy corn, in my opinion, is to shape it into a candy pumpkin. Back when I was probably in middle school, so maybe like 6th or 7th grade, I started to get really into psychic phenomena kind of stuff. Partially, this was a continuation of a lifelong love of the paranormal, of course. When I was like 6 or 7, my mom bought me a book from Reader's Digest called Mysteries of the Unexplained that I read so often that some of the pages have fallen out of it. I still have that book, too, although now, with the internet, it's a lot easier to find all kinds of spooky stuff, thankfully. But another part of it had to do with September 11th. I had heard a story that a random number generator at some psychic think tank somewhere had been able to predict the event a few hours before it occurred. Supposedly, it had a million random number generators running at once or something, and they all started to give very similar pattern results that morning. A spike in what these psychic researchers called sort of an awareness spike? That something was going to happen that would affect a whole lot of people. Anyways, so I was in the 7th grade, let's say, and I found a website that purported to be able to measure your psychic ability. Specifically, it stated that it could tell if you were the sort of person whose mental abilities could cause a poltergeist to appear in your home or more closely to cause what appeared to be a poltergeist, but was really an adolescent whose psychic abilities were coming to fruition. Since I'd always wanted to be an X-Man, and since this was on the internet, I figured it must be legitimate. The site had all sorts of exercises to increase your mental powers, including trying to cause a ball of light to move about your inner eye, foods to eat to boost your psychic abilities, and randomized games to play against a computer that allowed you to fine-tune your skills. One in particular has always sort of struck me as being especially interesting. So you'd click on this link and go to a page that was all white, except for a black dot that would move around the screen randomly. It was attached to a randomized script that caused it to move to a different pixel position at random points. So the same idea as the random number generator predicting September 11th, but on a much smaller scale. The idea was that if you had psychic powers, you should be able to cause the dot to move to where you wanted it to go, keep it in place, and whatever, by manipulating the random number generator that was controlling it. Now, obviously, any computer programmer knows how funny this is. A random number generator isn't really random, since for true randomness to occur, it would need to pull from some natural source of randomness. Even if our computers seem to be giving us random numbers, they have had to be programmed in by a person somehow. And it's unlikely that this Angel Fire website, set up in like 2002, had a true random number generator moving this pixel around a screen. 
Instead, it was probably running on an insanely long script, and so couldn't actually be changed or was not truly random, such as a roll of dice, but instead used many of the computer models that approximate true randomness. So I could never get the pixel to move, obviously, and Mike's psychic abilities haven't really shown themselves to be any greater as time has gone on. But the idea that poltergeists, or noisy ghosts, could be caused by someone's telekinetic abilities has always been one that I really liked. The image of someone like Jean Grey from the X-Men being so overwrought with emotion that things start to move around their home randomly, making huge messes and noises, but seemingly coming from some other ghostly thing that you cannot see, is a really strong one, I think, for horror movies and shows generally. It isn't the house, or a ghost, or whatever, but it's you that's causing all the scary, horrible things happening to you. Now that's a compelling lead-in to four or five seasons of eventually frustrating TV melodrama. What is the history of poltergeists? How does it connect to telekinetics? And is there any proof for any of that stuff in the first place? What sort of explanations have been given for poltergeist activity in the past? And how does the paranormal community explain these events today? Is there room in science for this sort of action at a distance? Or would it break some of the fundamental rules we found out about the universe? Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast! Tonight's episode, Poltergeist! Alright, quick some housekeeping. I finally got an email from a listener. Well, at least, I think it's a listener. Either way, very excited. It's in regards to the Fairfield Hospital, where polio treatments occurred, and where Justine and potentially the Subberton man met, at least if my polio theory has any backing to it. Anyways, the email was sent anonymously, but I want to thank whoever sent it. My dream is to actually answer a listener email question, so, you know, if you want to make my day, shoot me a line. Poltergeists, or stories about something similar to poltergeist activity, have been around almost as long as humans have. Generally, the signs of a poltergeist haunting include moving objects, strange knocks or noises, slamming doors or cabinets, and sometimes electromagnetic disturbances, such as lights going on and off. Initially, these things were believed to be caused by unusually strong spirits, dark beings that could actually affect the physical world in a way that could be potentially dangerous to people in the home. In some cases, poltergeist activity was even thought to be the work of the devil. One famous case has come to be known as the Devil Drummer of Tedworth, starting in 1661. Supposedly a landowner named John Mompesson filed a lawsuit against a vagrant drummer named William Drury, who was panhandling on his property, I guess resulting in the court giving the drum to Mompesson, which, like, okay, I guess the guy probably didn't have a lot of property, but what kind of punishment is having to give away his drum to the guy who, at least on the face of it, called the judge because his drumming was bothering him? Mompesson, along with a number of other people who came to investigate, all the way up to 1668, claimed to, from that point forward, hear a drumming coming from somewhere in the house. Mompesson thought the drumming came from Drury, who it was thought had put a curse on the house using his connections to local gypsies. 
So, so far, we've got ridiculous laws and racism in the first 10 minutes of this episode. So you can tell it's going to be a strong one. So this case may be famous, but it's pretty well considered a hoax today. Amos Norton Kraft in 1881 suggested, quote, We are to remember also that the house of Mr. Mompesson contained several servants who doubtless possessed a good degree of human nature. Mr. Mompesson had caused the arrest and imprisonment of a member of a band of gypsies who were intensely enraged at him on that account that the disturbances ceased as soon as the gypsy was transported beyond the sea and his associates had no farther hope of his release. That these manifestations began again as soon as the gypsy returned from transportation, that the gypsy professed to be the cause of the disturbance, and that the excited imagination would naturally add to the manifestations which the enraged trickster really produced. End quote. Others have claimed that Mompesson's children actually caused the activity, especially his eldest daughter. But if you're not convinced by the hoax explanation here, the fact that his daughter seems to have been the center of the activity is an interesting one. As I've already said in the introduction, the current prevailing theory on poltergeists is that it has more to do with an individual person who is causing these things to happen unwittingly than a spirit or ghost. According to PrairieGhosts.com, poltergeists as they are currently understood have the following attributes. Quote, The current theory behind this poltergeist-like phenomena is that the activity is caused by a person in the household known as the human agent. The agent is usually an adolescent girl and normally one that is troubled emotionally. It is believed that she unconsciously manipulates physical objects in the house by psychokinesis or PK the power to move things by energy generated in the brain. This kinetic type of energy remains unexplained, but even some mainstream scientists are starting to explore the idea that it does exist. It is unknown why this energy seems to appear in females around the age of puberty, but documentation of its existence is starting to appear as more and more case studies have become public. It seems that when the activity begins to manifest, the girl is usually in the midst of some emotional or sexual turmoil. The presence of the energy is almost always an unconscious one, and it's rare when any of the agents actually realize that they are the source of the destruction around them. They do not realize that they are the reason that objects in the home have become displaced and are usually of the impression that a ghost, or some other sort of supernatural entity, is present instead. The bursts of PK come and go, and most poltergeist-like cases will peak early and then slowly fade away. It should be noted that while most cases such as this manifest around young women, it is possible for puberty-aged boys, and even older adults, to show this same unknowing ability. As with the young women, the vast majority will have no idea that they are causing the activity, and will be surprised to find there is even a possibility that strange things are happening because of them. End quote. There's a lot to take apart here, but probably the first one that I found fascinating is this line that, quote, but even some mainstream scientists are starting to explore the idea that it does exist, end quote. While that is sort of kind of true, to say that mainstream science is becoming interested in this sort of thing is sort of a stretch. Believe me, I looked for graduate programs that did stuff like that and couldn't find anything. Anyways, the other interesting thing is that somehow this poltergeist activity can be linked to a single person. But is that borne out by historical cases of poltergeist activity? We've already seen that the crazy drummer of Tedworth maybe could be a hoax, 
but it could also be linked, maybe, to this person who was cursed, or maybe even his eldest daughter. So is this consistent, or at least possible, in some of the more famous recent cases of poltergeist activity? One really good example of this are the cases that seem to have centered around Tina Resch. This one got a lot of publicity when it initially happened, around 1984. Supposedly, this teenage girl could move objects with her mind, seemingly to tip over photographs, levitate telephone sets, and all sorts of other things. The problem with this one, significantly, is that no one ever saw her move the objects. In fact, the only evidence there is for these events is either the noises that the family heard, the objects that seemed to move after Tina was in the room, or photographs taken by Fred Shannon, which show objects moving. The problem with these photos, though, is that they never happened when he was actually looking at the objects. In fact, the famous photograph of the floating telephone was taken while he was looking the other way and shooting basically behind his back at Tina. According to science writer Terrence Hines, quote, The Resch poltergeist turned out to be so elusive that no one ever actually saw a single object even start to move on its own accord. This included the newspaper photographer, who found that if he watched an object, it stubbornly refused to budge. So he would hold up his camera and look away. One of the photos obtained in this way was distributed by the Associated Press and touted widely as proof of the reality of the phenomena. Examined closely, the photographic evidence in this case strongly suggested that Tina was faking the occurrences by simply throwing the phone and other flying objects when no one was looking. Randy, so the amazing Randy, the famous skeptic, Randy's careful analysis of the other photos, mainly unpublished, of Tina and her flying phone strengthened the conclusion that she was faking. Interestingly, the editor of the Columbus Dispatch, Luke Feck, embarrassed by the revelation that he and his paper were taken in by so obvious a fake, refused Randy permission to print the photos he had given him earlier, in an apparent attempt to suppress the evidence of Tina's trickery and the newspaper's credulity, end quote. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Even more crazy, the cases started after Resch watched the movie Poltergeist, supposedly. A lot of Poltergeist cases today, from the skeptical side, are believed to be due to this sort of troubled teenager attempting to seek attention by making up a ghost or poltergeist or something. But are there any cases where these things are maybe a little bit stronger? Well, unfortunately, in many cases, these things are not particularly well documented in terms of actual evidence. Despite TV shows that suggest that there are all of these videos or pictures of true ghostly activity, or telekinesis, or psychokinesis, however you want to call it, there aren't really all that many, and no tests as far as I can tell, that show something so out of the realm of possibility that couldn't be faked by someone. Okay, I'm sure some of you at home right now are thinking, well what sort of evidence would actually be good enough for scientists to accept these things? I think we can actually tackle that problem pretty easily, though, at least as a thought experiment. One big problem with these pieces of evidence is that there is no chain to the evidence itself. In other words, there's no way to ensure that set experimental conditions are followed, 
or that things haven't been tampered with, or that faking could not occur. For example, in the case of poltergeist activity, in many cases, the things that seem to be occurring aren't actually observed by the people living in the home until they're so racked with nervousness and lack of sleep that potentially they are seeing what they expect. Things usually start small, noises they can't explain that all the children complain of, or voices that seem to come from nowhere. But I'm sure I'm not the only one who, because I expect to hear a voice, sometimes will. The best example of this used to happen in my house, where I grew up with my mom. My mom has a very distinctive yell for me, sort of a Tarzan-esque, Christopher, that straight up rings through your bones. To complicate matters further, my mom has for a number of years suffered from a loss of hearing, so she can't exactly modulate the finer decibel levels of her voice at times. So when I was growing up, if I was doing something I shouldn't have been doing, I was particularly fine-tuned to hear my mom's distinctive call. Like a hunter in the woods who hears the eerie call of a wolf when the wind blows, I would sometimes hear my mom scream my name when the water heater would turn on, or a particularly loud car drove by our house, or even if I had music playing loudly. So maybe most people get phantom beeps or buzzes from their phone, but it's the same sort of process. Anyways, as a very paranoid child, I heard noises and knocks on my home all the time that I was sure was the sound of an axe-wielding demon serial killer coming to rip out my insides. So in cases where it seems like the only evidence is the word of a child, or weird noises with no evidence, I'm always skeptical. Regardless, what would a good experiment of poltergeist activity be? First off, keep one room where activity has occurred in the past in the home completely free of people. Note down precisely where objects are. Cordon it off, keep video cameras recording on the exits and entrances, and ensure that no trickery can occur. That would really be good enough for me. And if we had a constant surveillance on the room of that sort, and something did in fact seem to move around, I would start bringing in the big investigative guns. If it seems to be centered around a single person, well, why not do something like a sleep test? Pay for the family to stay in a hotel, pay for their meals, for like a week. Obviously no cameras in the private rooms such as bathrooms. And maybe keep the kids in their own room so that surveillance doesn't interfere with the parents. And if something happens, bam, we have incontrovertible proof. So, I've had a really hard time finding truly good evidence of poltergeists, despite my personal wishes at the beginning of this episode. But it doesn't mean we can't talk about some of the really weird, scientific questions that these cases bring up. And one of the weirder ways that these cases seem to break science as we currently know it is through thermodynamics in one way, and in the speed of light in the other. And like, really breaks them too. Not just aliens manipulating gravity in a way that we currently don't understand. Poltergeists and telekinesis straight up destroy the first and second laws of thermodynamics seemingly, as well as the maximum speed limit of the universe. Pretty good for what might be a teenager throwing stuff around their room. Okay, so the speed of light is probably the easiest to explain science thing that poltergeist phenomena mess up for us. The speed of light is a pretty weird thing if you really start to think about it. Basically, the idea is that everything in the universe, most famously light, but also quanta particles generally, cannot move faster than 
792,458 meters per second in a vacuum, so space. That is about 186,000 miles per second. Now, this was most famously postulated by Einstein in his theory of special relativity. But thinkers such as Bacon, Kepler, and Galileo actually had tried to do experiments on this same value. So, what Einstein said means that the speed of light cannot be exceeded by other sorts of matter. No matter how fast you get, light will always move just as fast. Something that leads to things like time dilation and objects becoming more condensed as they approach the speed of light. It gets pretty weird. But this also means that information can't travel faster than light either. One famous philosophical argument about this involves a very, very long stick. Imagine you have a stick that is 299,792,459 meters long. That means that it is just one meter longer than light can travel in one second. I'm sitting on one end of the stick, in the space around Earth, and you're sitting on the other side of it, in the space outside Hyper-Earth from beyond the stars. Imagine that this is going on, and I decide to move the stick. Like I push it towards you. Well, how long will it take for the other end of the stick to move? The speed of light states that it should take, at minimum, a very, very small amount of time over a second for the information of me moving the stick to travel down to you. If that information, or the atoms in the stick moving simultaneously, causing the bulk stick to move, obeys the speed limit of the universe. But I move the stick, right? And it's one noticeably comically large object. Shouldn't it move all at once? Now we can get really complicated here, but it is a very simple version of a similar quantum mechanical weirdness that is often postulated. Basically, electrons are paired one to the other based on something that we call their quantum spin number in an atom. If you have an up electron in an atom, you should also have a down electron. The argument goes that if you shot these electrons at the speed of light away from each other and measured the spin of one, wouldn't that necessarily set the spin of the other? Does that information break the speed of light? How heavy do you think a stick that's like 300 million meters long would be? If we had a telekinetic person, or someone who could do things like read minds or move objects, it should be bounded by the law of the speed of light. That seems to be one that is pretty well unbreakable. No matter what sort of weird wormhole stuff you think you can make this ghost-shaped peg fit into the Bigfoot-shaped hole with. If we find that people can read minds in a way that seems to break the law of the speed of light, well, then one option is that things aren't as non-determinable as we think. Maybe actions are determinate in a way that is more significant than we currently believe they are. So the laws of the speed of light, or things like that, don't really matter for the paranormal. But as we've talked about already on the show, if that's the case, well then free will has a problem, maybe. Of course things don't always need to make sense or fit into a set of rules, but as a scientist, I like it when they do, and my worldview is one that almost requires these causal chains to exist. For poltergeist or telekinetic activity, the problem, I think, would be that this information seems to travel seemingly instantaneously. Would telekinetic forces be constrained by the general laws of physics that non-telekinetic forces are? Do telekinetic forces need to move through objects or space in the same way that other forces in a medium do? 
If not, then what do telekinetic forces say about things like the speed of light or the laws of balances of energy? This leads into the second problem of telekinetic forces, that of how they would interact with our basic laws of thermodynamics. Now, thermodynamics is a scary word for a branch of physics that is particularly math-heavy and therefore scary for most people. But the basic idea is that energy in the universe is conserved. In other words, energy cannot be created or destroyed, and so you should be able to basically make an accounting to show that the energy going into a system is the same amount as going out of it. Engines and refrigerators and all sorts of systems make use of this principle by moving energy between heat, or thermal energy, and work, or energy used to move something with a force. Think about your car engine, for example. A chemical fuel burns, releasing heat, and that heat changes the pressure of a gas within the engine pistons by increasing its temperature. Because the pistons sit snugly within the cylinder where the gas is held, there's no place for the gas to go as its pressure increases. The gas eventually becomes so pressurized that it can move the piston up, which takes some energy. And as the gas moves the piston, it's doing work, resulting in the energy it takes to move that piston along its path upwards, being removed from the gas, cooling it off. The cycle then continues. This balancing of heat and work energy is the first law of thermodynamics. That has to be the case. It's as close to a universal law as one can get. And if we include entropy, it gets even closer to an absolute fact. So okay, if that's true, then where does the energy for telekinetic force come from? Clearly, moving around a telephone across a room takes some work energy. And if thermodynamics is correct, that has to come from somewhere. But where? Is it being caused by the person's mind somehow? If that's the case, then where does that energy come from? Energy can't just be created. So, it has to be transmitting from one clear energy source to another. Ultimately, the thermodynamic case for telekinetics is pretty rough. But maybe they aren't using forces at all. What if they're altering the local space-time, yielding changes in gravity? Or maybe, once again, this thing isn't supposed to make sense. Maybe it is really supernatural. The science for poltergeists and telekinetics are pretty rough to be sure, with this one in particular messing up two pretty solid scientific laws. And unfortunately, a lot of the cases we've looked at tonight seem to be hoaxes, or mistaken identification, or things like that. But does that mean all of them are fake? To the people that these things are happening to, they certainly aren't. One pretty striking case is one that occurred when rocks appeared to be spontaneously thrown at homes in 1981 in Birmingham, England. At the peak of the activity, Chief Inspector Len Turley said, We have spent more than a thousand man-hours on this case. We are keeping an open mind about the whole thing. We don't know why it's gone on for so long. Police even supposed that maybe the case was being caused by someone using a giant catapult to hurl stones at some houses. But there's no doubt that residents were absolutely terrified and terrorized by the stonings. These are quotes from a newspaper article about the case now. Quote, The home of Jeffrey Sidebotham and his sister Gwyneth Donnelly sustained the worst damage. They still live at 36, the home they shared with their parents. 
Jeffrey, age 67, said, I'm still very bitter. It was an absolute nightmare and hastened the death of my mother without a doubt. His mother, crippled with arthritis and emphysema, died in 1982. Jeffrey worked nights for the co-op, so was not present when windows were put through. But he was skeptical about the ghostly claims. Someone, not something, did it and got away with it. It upset the whole household. There were police everywhere, even in the trees, freezing, he recalled. Windows were smashed every night by stones. As soon as you replaced one, it would be put through again. One bed was covered in glass. We weren't fully insured, so it must have cost a fortune. Gwyneth wept as she recalled the nightly torment. The 64-year-old said, It took my mother's life. I can remember a stone coming through the window and landing right by her wheelchair. I used to go to bed with a Bible under my pillow and prayed every night for it to stop. A vicar came to our house and he was convinced it was the work of vandals. Maybe the science for these cases isn't very strong. And in fact, at least for the telekinetic explanation, science seems to almost rule it out, at least as I currently can formulate some explanation for these things. But the people who seem to be affected by this stuff are actually terrified. And if it is just a hoax or an angry neighbor with a catapult or a disturbed teenager making waves to get attention, the lengths that these people are going to make the lives of others absolute hell to the point that they think they are being attacked by some paranormal entity is almost more scary than it isn't some unexplainable paranormal thing, but just normal human meanness, a more down-to-earth sort of evil that any one of us could encounter in our lives. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening, and thank you for telling your friends. I've been especially excited to hear that I've gained a few listeners in colleges around the Boston and Cambridge area, which is just awesome. My logo was designed by Carrie Sheehan, whose websites can be found at kshehen.com. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and WordPress, and of course on podbean.com. Thanks again. Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. 